Uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, would you please? As we've been doing, I want to um, read the entirety of the chapter. And use it as a, a launch point for this morning for what I believe the Lord is wanting to encourage us in. I'm going to read all of Nehemiah chapter 5. It's 19 verses, reading from the ESV. And um, if you don't have that translation, we'll put it up on the monitor for you so that you can follow along. And uh, just as we prepare ourselves, let's just also prepare to receive the word of the Lord this morning which is the life for a believer, right? Now these arose, excuse me, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that, you, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Verse 14, moreover, from the day, excuse me, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their, and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I probably should have said before I jumped in to the chapter this morning, we're finding ourselves at this kind of unique moment here in Nehemiah. And I trust that you all recall last week's um, teaching on Nehemiah chapter 4. And we were just, we're working through both books, Ezra and Nehemiah up to this point. And so um, I want to use the text today as more of a, a launching point because at first glance, while it might be not explicitly obvious within Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, there's something that I believe just as I considered it and as I prayed and sought the Lord for us this morning, um, there's something I believe that the Lord has for us today. And um, I find them so much not stated well and necessarily in the words of Nehemiah, but the words of Jeremiah the prophet, and I want to just read you these as by way of launching into our text. Jeremiah says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Last week, Rick asked a question, are we aware of the schemes of the, de of the devil? Are we aware of the schemes of the enemy? And it prompted me this morning to ask a similar question myself this week. Am I aware of the schemes of my flesh? Am I aware of the, of the schemes of my, of my own heart apart from Christ Jesus? And by this, I, I would ask us, do we know the tendencies of our flesh that are opposed to Christ? Can we identify our, our own heart sicknesses that are in conflict with matters of righteousness? Because like Satan's schemes, these two would want to derail us and keep us from living fully as we are and what we've been created for. And Paul in the book of Galatians in his letter in chapter 5, he says that the desires of the flesh are against that of the Spirit, the capital S of the Holy Spirit. And that the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And he says, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And I would say that perhaps we could also add to that doing the things that you ought to do. That the desires of the flesh are in opposition to the things of the spirit. And so we have this tension that we live within this, this unique reality as believers who have been recipients of the kingdom of God. Who live within the kingdom of God now, but yet are not fully glorified. And this tension exists within us then of not yet receiving or achieving that state of perfection that God will finally and ultimately bring about within us one day when we are brought into glory with him. And until that point, here we find ourselves almost straddled within two worlds. Although even that analogy isn't exactly perfect, but you get the picture. In the sense that we are still of this flesh, of this world, we still have the propensity towards sin, and yet God has made us alive has changed us, has renewed us, has regenerated us, and has put within us a longing for righteousness and a longing for holiness. He has renewed our minds and is in the process of making us like him. 
And so this tension that we live in of the flesh and the spirit is one that we all naturally experience, is it not? And so I believe that what is happening here in chapter 5 is indicative of the deep sickness of the human heart apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from the transformative power of Christ Jesus. And this might be a, a deeper cut of Nehemiah 5. It's like a B-side, perhaps, to Nehemiah 5. But it's an interesting chapter, isn't it? Yeah. Nehemiah 4 was rather explicit. It's like, okay, we get this. There's this overt opposition coming against the people. There's a clear call to, to labor in the work. And, and I think most of us can really attest to, to just... The, the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, like Nehemiah 5 or 4 really resonates with us. This call to have in one hand a trowel and in, in the other hand a sword or a spear and we're working and we're warring and we're working and we're warring and we're watching for our brother. And then we get to Nehemiah 5 and it's like, what's going on? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we've got a, now this really overt opposition that comes against the people of God in chapter 4. And now all of a sudden we turn and there's this inward, more subvert opposition that arises amongst the people of Israel themselves. And there's three complaints that are brought to Nehemiah. And all of them are, are surrounding this issue of means. But there's really something deeper at work here that we need to take a look at. The work now has been going on for some time, probably months, and we've seen thus far that the call was literally a night and day call to engage in rebuilding the wall. Night and day. And the result of this demanding and rigorous work was dire financial conditions for many of the people of Israel. And so there's three things that are brought, and we see them in verses 2, 3, and 4. The first is that with the poorest amongst the people of Israel, it's those who don't have, have any lands or, or any real means to provide apart from the work that they put their hands to. And the demand of rebuilding was taking them from their normal work, and therefore they had, didn't have any means for food and simple necessities for their life. The second comes from another group, those with means, those who own land, who own vineyards, who, who own orchards. But because of the famine, which we're not certain exactly if this famine has been happening, it's probably been happening before Nehemiah got there, most likely. But we've just presented with it here. But because of this famine, they were having to take out loans against their holdings in order to have money to buy crops for planting. And while their situation was seemingly better than the previous, the mounting debt and the interest from the debt was just as significant of an issue. And then the third that we see in verse 4, complaint comes by way of those who had borrowed money from fellow Jews to pay the required tax that the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, had claimed for those who had holdings and lands and vineyards and orchards. And it's thought that the, while you might remember how we talked about just the really um, kind of openness that the Persian king had towards 
promoting other religions and promoting your ability to worship as you felt so inclined. When it came to matters of finance, they were much less generous. And it's thought that upwards of 40 or 50% was a taxation brought against those uh, who had some type of land or means within the Persian kingdom. That's pretty radical, right? We get flustered over $6 a gallon for gas, rightfully so. But imagine having a 40% uh, property tax on your house every year. Unsustainable. And so whether it was debt for grain, for crops, or whether it was debt because of the taxation, the interest that was enacted by their lenders was seemingly so excessive that the families were having to sell their children into slavery in order to pay for the debt. Now remember, this is Jew against Jew. The people that were doing the lending to the borrowers were their brothers and sisters. And we see this because in verse 5, he says that our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children is as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And as Rick said a moment ago, it's usury. That's what was happening. And in case you didn't think it could get any worse than that, the real entrepreneurial ones within the people of Israel, they saw this opportunity that somehow... And it's alluded to, again, it's not explicit, but it's alluded to here in this chapter, that, that they had been buying back those who had been sent into slavery. And so somehow the community, the people of Israel, had put something in place where their resources were being pooled so that they could buy that. And all of this, and we don't have time to get into it, but it's, it's, there is really explicit and clear instructions within the Mosaic law of how to engage in debt and slavery in the year of Jubilee, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's just so much to say at this point that they had come up with this way that they were buying back their brothers and sisters and the children and those who had been enslaved. And so seeing this as a effort of the people of Israel, some of the entrepreneurs went, well, wait a minute. I can levy extra debt or interest against your debt, forcing you to sell your family into slavery, knowing that they'll be bought back, bought back by the community. And so you can see this exploitation now as well was happening. And this is all within the people of God. And so I'm reading this chapter, and as I said, I'm going, what is this chapter saying to us? And sometimes, as I said, it's more explicit and sometimes it's a little bit harder to dig into. But here's what I got to. I was thinking to myself, how in the world, what, what has happened within the human heart, that it, within the community of God, within the people of God, that this type of egregious sin was happening when all this opposition was coming from outward and yet all the while too, on the inward, they were doing such great offenses towards one another. And so as I was thinking about it, I was saying, man, how is this possible? And I was trying to think of our own faith community. And as I said, I came to this point that on its own, that the human heart is naturally wicked and it's desperate and in need of renewal. On its own, the human heart, the, 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 the heart of stone is naturally inclined towards wickedness. And I don't think that we have to go too far, right? To, we, we know that even just what we see here is not the worst that we have heard of within human history. So we understand this, and we know that this is to be true. But what I want to say this morning is that, more importantly, 
What we understand and what we believe about this reality has great impact on how we see the world and how we see ourselves and how we follow Jesus. Understanding the, the sickness of the human heart. And so there were those who, who don't have a grid of belief to help process mankind's atrocities. And you can understand why one would want to believe in the innate goodness of the heart of man. And I want to share with you this quote you guys know the, the author, H.G. Uh, Wells, and he wrote a book in the early 1930s. It's a short history of the world, and he said this in this book. He said, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know? going on from strength to strength in ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done the little triumphs of his present state form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do? What an optimistic outlook on the reality of humanity. And less than 10 years later, he would say this, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless the return of the deliberate and the organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Nine years later, what transpired in those nine years? World War II. Upon seeing the atrocities of the, and, and the extent of the vileness of the human heart, what a, what a shift of paradigm for him. Jesus said this in Mark. He says, from within, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so in the Christian faith, we call this original sin. It's that which we're born with. And this is such a significant difference. And this is why I want to just speak on this this morning, because of the importance of it as we live our life as believers in this day and age. So many people I know believe that humanity in and of themselves is innately good. And when given the choice, ultimately will choose goodness over evil. But the word of God teaches us that man is born with a stained soul, with a stained spirit, and that which came from Adam, the sin of Adam, has become our own sin. And therefore, man is inherently wicked. And thus the words of Jeremiah. And even within our own present study, we can see this there, there, there's this, uh, this a, a shred or a, a thread, if you will, of this truth or this reality of the heart of mankind. Recall as we began in our study of Ezra, in our overview, we talked about there that there's a, a pattern that we were going to see and actually come to expect as we studied through Ezra and Nehemiah. One actually that almost most all of the Old Testament shows in some form or another and the pattern is this, that God raises up his people to a task, that they labor in faith, that they stall out in sin, that they resume again in faith, but ultimately they do not maintain faithfully. Sin, faith, 
sin, faith, sin, faith. In our own lives, we see that as well, don't we? We endeavor in faith, we have a darn good stretch, and then we stumble in sin. And then God calls us again to a place of repentance and forgiveness, and we're faithful, and we sin, and we're faithful, and we sin. Why is that? Because we are not yet perfected. Because God, we are at, God is at work within us because we're in a process. So this is the call, brothers and sisters. And I'm, I'm going to get to my point here in, in just a moment. But this is the call of the Christian life, to be submitted to the process of sanctification of the Lord Jesus Christ. The transformation whereby we are being made into the likeness of him by the power of the Holy Spirit that's work within, at work within us. This is not just a process that we submit ourselves to, but it's a process that we pursue. We pursue by the grace of God being transformed and being made into his likeness. And all of this comes from one thing, and this is what I really want to get into this morning. The purpose of this pattern, the purpose of, of what we have seen thus far in the people of Israel's faithfulness and stumbling and faithfulness and stumbling is not so that it would say to us, well, gosh, if they can't do it, how in the world am I going to do it? It's to, remember, point us to a greater, and re a greater truth and a greater reality. That what Jesus Christ brought, that what Jesus Christ enacted, that what the kingdom of God holds, that what the new covenant reality and truth of the Christian life is, is a absolute, not just a change of who you are, but an exchange of your nature. And so when Jeremiah says that the human heart is desperately sick and is deceitful above all things, we can say amen to that because we understand that apart from Christ, we are sinful. But yet what God has done to us and in us is significant and is great. There's two texts that I want us just to quickly look at that speak to this reality. The first, let's turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 30, it's going to be a few books forward, right after the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 30, I want to just, oh, I just closed my Bible. I want to just read this. Verse 12, starting in verse 12 of, chap, 12 of chapter 30, Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I've done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. And he says this in verse 17, for I will restore health to you, and I will heal your wounds, declares the Lord. That which is incurable, the Lord God brings healing to now, two books forward, turn to Ezekiel, and this is a very well-known portion of Ezekiel, but it speaks to this condition, and it speaks to the transformative work of the Lord Jesus Christ within our heart. Chapter 36, 
beginning in verse 24, and the Lord says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Brothers and sisters, how amazing for the people. Now, both of this, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were speaking to the people of Israel. This was pre-exile. Ezekiel was pre-exile, that is, pre-captivity. How remarkable, what a promise this is. And yet, we find ourselves today in the New Covenant era, church, where the, the reality of this has actually been enacted within us. What a profound reality this is. Do you ever stop and marvel at the work of God in your life? At the extent of what God has done within you? Do you ever stop and let that be a cause for worship? Even in all of our funk and our junk, even in all of our sin cycles that still exist, yet the reality remains that what God has done is he has not just changed, he has exchanged who we are in our sinfulness for now a new creation, what he has caused us to be. The Bible speaks of the heart as more than just a physical organ. It's the center of our spiritual life. And like its natural counterpart, it too is vital to the Christian's well-being and health. We're told to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4 says, guard your hearts to give watch over them with all diligence. He says, because from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart because from it flows the springs of life. The heart is the place where emotions and desires begin. It's that which drives the will of man and woman towards action. And apart from Christ, as we just read, the heart is sick. And it's not just in need of healing, but it's in need of replacement. And yet again, there those words are presented to us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when our hearts were hardened and turned against him, he made us alive together with Christ. What a picture of the regeneration of the heart of men and women. He made us alive. It's like that, that, that picture we have in Genesis where he breathes into the nostrils of man and brings them to life. So again, in the regenesis of what's happened in the renewing of our hearts and minds, of our hearts and minds, brothers and sisters, the Lord breathes again new life into us. Well, what's the point all of, of all this? Just to, to make us feel good or to say the things that we already know. It's to remind us, church, of who we are. And I love this statement, and I've been saying it lately, and again, I'll just give credit to my father for saying it. Live as who you are. Be who you are. You have been regenerated. You have been given a heart of flesh, the heart which drives 
the every bit of your life and your action, brothers and sisters, let's live in accordance with who we are. The Lord has exchanged, not just changed. He takes what is stone and he replaces it with something that is tender, a heart that's pliable and malleable and able to be conformed. It's one that's vibrant, that's alive to him, that's alive to holiness, that's alive to righteousness, that desires the things of God, that, doesn't, that no longer just desires the pleasures of the world, but desires the pleasures of the kingdom. That's the heart that we have been given. Does our life align with that reality? Are we guarding our hearts to the point that that's true, that we could say that overarchingly is true about us? And with this replacement comes a new capacity, a new ability, if you will, to live according to right practices to holiness and to righteousness. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, that we once followed, past tense, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that we once lived pursuing the passions of our flesh, that we once lived carrying out the desires of our minds and bodies, but we know how that ends, as I just said a moment ago, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus. We have to live as those who have been made new, because in fact, we are new. The heart is deceitful above all things, but Christ Jesus, by his mercy, has performed open heart surgery within us. Thank God. What happens? There are times when an organ becomes so sick that no medicine, synthetic or natural, does any good to an organ, to a, a physical organ. What do they do? They replace it. That's wild, isn't it? That our physical bodies can, have, can be cut open and an organ, a new organ can be replaced within it. This is literally what God has done on a, on, a, on a sovereign, spiritual, and divine level. May, this co- may it cause us to be in awe and wonder, brothers and sisters. Let's expect a new way of living that, that is fueled by a new means of living and that is by a regenerate heart. We now desire what Christ desires for us which is righteousness. We now pursue what he has revealed to us, which is holiness. And the result is that we live out as he lived. Remember that we are those who come after. He is the firstborn of many of who would follow. He lived obediently, we live obediently. He lived faithfully, we live faithfully. He lived with great perseverance, so we continue on with great perseverance. See, Nehemiah 5 reminds us of this heart sickness. But more importantly, it points us to what God did in Christ Jesus. And we live in that reality in the New Covenant era. So for the people of Israel, they saw an opportunity for personal gain rather than compassion. Using a fellow brother's plight to strengthen their own position. They lived out of greed rather than generosity, exploiting and capitalizing on another's weakness. But this isn't how we ought to walk. What is this new way of living that we should both expect and pursue? Look at me. Look, look at me. Look at me. And now look with me. 
at Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm just, as you can tell this morning, church, I'm wanting to just stir us. Stir us in what is true. It's so good to be reminded of what is true. Because the day in and the day out, we know like it just wears us down. It dilutes us from time to time. And this is such a great place in the presence of our brothers and sisters, those whom we have locked arms with to say, this is what is true. That's right. Let's remember this and let's live this out together. Ephesians chapter four. What is this new way of living that a new heart, a new organ, the new epicenter of our spiritual being, how now does this look? And I love that in my Bible and probably yours as well, Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse 17 is titled the new life. This is the new way, church. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Of God, sorry, because of the ignorance as it is in them due to their hardness of heart. Notice that. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Gosh, it sounds a lot like Nehemiah 5. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, and there is a part of that, the new heart, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Now here it is. That was the old way, now here is the new. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And he says this in verse one of five, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ love us and gave, up, gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice. I love how practical Paul gets here in Ephesians chapter four. The reality of the transformation and the exchange of the heart of stone for the heart of flesh, brothers and sisters, results in a very practical outworking. Diligence with our, with our, with our work, with the work of our hands. What comes out of our mouth, Paul talks about. The things that we think about, the actions of our life, all of those are stemming from the reality that we have received this transplant of something new. Just as life is generated by our physical hearts and thus the quality of life by our physical hearts determines the quality of our physical lives, 
so too does our spiritual heart drive and determine the quality of our spiritual lives. Guard your hearts, for from it flows. Guard your hearts, brothers and sisters. How do we guard our hearts? Exactly like you think. Guard from what comes in. Guard from what comes in here, from what comes in here. Guard your hearts from the things that you pursue up here, the things that you, you think are reality, and yet allow your mind to be transformed by the reality of what is true. Guard your hearts by the relationships that you have. Surround yourselves with your brothers and sisters in Christ, not just those people who bring pleasure to your life, necessarily, while we actually can have both. That made it sound like, this is no fun, that's more fun out there. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> you get my point. <laughs> you get the point of what I'm saying. It's from the reality of this new renewal of our hearts in Christ Jesus that living as new creations, that living as the new creation of Christ Jesus comes from the source of being renewed in our hearts. This heart renewal is, it's, as I was just thinking about what are the practical outworkings of it, I realized that in all these areas where Paul in the new covenant is just speaking to all these like live like this and live like this and live like this and live like this. Well, how do we do that? It all comes from here, church. And, the, and again, what I'm saying to us this morning is let's be aware and let's live out of the reality of what is true for us. And so when we get to Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13 and Romans chapter 14 where Paul is talking about marks of a true believer and how to live humbly and peacefully within the world and how to exist together as the body of Christ, we realize that it all comes from here. It's what drives our, our efforts to strive for putting off the old self and for putting on the new, as Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3 and here in Ephesians 4. It's how we are able to love our wives as husbands, as Paul commands in Ephesians 5, and how as parents we're to lead our children in Ephesians 6. It all comes from right here. It's how Paul's great just encouragement in Philippians chapter 3 to persevere and his words in Ephesians 5, to walk in love, and in Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens, all of that stems from right here. Brothers and sisters, we have been made new. He has renewed. If you are a faith today, your heart of stone has become a heart of flesh, and from that comes righteousness in a pursuit of holiness, a new way of thinking, a new way of living, just like our heart pumps the lifeblood through our bodies, so too does our spiritual heart pump now a new life throughout our physical beings. This is wild. This is not normal. But yet, this is our reality. Brothers and sisters, again, let's live as who we are. Amen?